This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 8, Part 13. The jury was sworn. It consisted of persons of highly respectable station. The foreman was Sir Roger Langley, a baronet of old and honourable family. With him were joined a knight and ten esquires, several of whom are known to have been men of large possessions. There were some nonconformists in the number, for the bishops had wisely resolved not to show any distrust of the Protestant dissenters. One name excited considerable alarm, that of Michael Arnold. He was brewer to the palace, and it was apprehended that the government counted on his voice. The story goes that he complained bitterly of the position in which he found himself. "'Whatever I do,' he said, "'I'm sure to be half ruined. If I say not guilty, I shall brew no more for the king, and if I say guilty, I shall brew no more for anybody else.' The trial then commenced a trial which, even when coolly perused after the lapse of more than a century and a half, has all the interest of a drama. The advocates contended on both sides with far more than professional keenness and vehemence. The audience listened with as much anxiety as if the fate of every one of them was to be decided by the verdict, and the turns of fortune were so sudden and amazing that the multitude repeatedly passed in a single minute from anxiety to exultation and back again from exultation to still deeper anxiety. The information charged the bishops with having written or published in the county of Middlesex a false, malicious, and seditious libel. The attorney and solicitor first tried to prove the writing. For this purpose several persons were called to speak to the hands of the bishops, but the witnesses were so unwilling that hardly a single plain answer could be extracted from any of them. Pemberton, Pollexfen, and Levince contended that there was no evidence to go to the jury. Two of the judges, Holloway and Powell, declared themselves with the same opinion, and the hopes of the spectators rose high. All at once the Crown lawyers announced their intention to take another line. Powis, with shame and reluctance which he could not dissemble, put into the witness-box Blathwaite, a clerk of the Privy Council, who had been present when the King interrogated the bishops. Blathwaite swore that he had heard them own their signatures. His testimony was decisive. Why? said Judge Holloway to the attorney, when you had such evidence, did you not produce it at first, without all this waste of time? It soon appeared why the counsel for the Crown had been unwilling, without absolute necessity, to resort to this mode of proof. Pemberton stopped Blathwaite, subjected him to a searching cross-examination, and insisted upon having all that had passed between the King and the defendants fully related. "'This is a pretty thing indeed,' cried Williams. "'Do you think,' said Powis, "'that you are at liberty to ask our witnesses any impertinent question that comes into your heads?' The advocates of the bishops were not men to be so put down. "'He is sworn,' said Pollexfen, "'to tell the truth and the whole truth, and an answer we must and will have.' 
The witness shuffled, equivocated, pretended to have misunderstood the questions, implored the protection of the court. But he was in hands from which it was not easy to escape. At length the attorney again interposed. If, he said, you persist in asking such a question, tell us at least what use you mean to make of it. Pemberton, who through the whole trial did his duty manfully and ably, replied without hesitation, My lords, I will answer, Mr. Attorney. I will deal plainly with the court. If the bishops owned this paper under a promise from His Majesty that their confession should not be used against them, I hope no unfair advantage will be taken of them. "'You put on His Majesty what I dare hardly name,' said Williams. "'Since you will be so pressing, I demand for the King that the question may be recorded.' "'What do you mean, Mr. Solicitor?' said Sawyer, interposing. "'I know what I mean,' said the apostate. "'I desire that the question may be recorded in court.' "'Record what you will. I am not afraid of you, Mr. Solicitor,' said Pemberton. Then came a loud and fierce altercation which the Chief Justice could with difficulty quiet. In other circumstances he would probably have ordered the question to be recorded, and Pemberton to be committed. But on this great day he was overawed. He often cast a side glance towards the thick rows of earls and barons by whom he was watched, and who in the next Parliament might be his judges. He looked a bystander said, as if all the peers present had halters in their pockets. At length Blathwaite was forced to give a full account of what had happened. It appeared that the King had entered into no express covenant with the bishops, but it appeared also that the bishops might not unreasonably think that there was an implied engagement. Indeed, from the unwillingness of the Crown lawyers to put the clerk of the council into the witness-box, and from the vehemence with which they objected to Pemberton's cross-examination, it is plain that they were themselves of this opinion. However, the handwriting was now proved. But a new and serious objection was raised. It was not sufficient to prove that the bishops had written the alleged libel. It was necessary to prove also that they had written it in the county of Middlesex. And not only was it out of the power of the attorney and solicitor to prove this, but it was in the power of the defendants to prove the contrary. For it so happened that Sancroft had never once left the palace, at Lambeth, from the time when the order in council appeared, till after the petition was in the King's hands. The whole case for the prosecution had therefore completely broken down, and the audience with great glee expected a speedy acquittal. The Crown lawyers then changed their ground again, abandoned altogether the charge of writing a libel, and undertook to prove that the bishops had published a libel in the county of Middlesex. The difficulties were great. The delivery of the petition to the King was undoubtedly, in the eye of the law, a publication. But how was this delivery to be proved? No person had been present at the audience in the royal closet except the King and the defendants. The King could not well be sworn. It was therefore only by the admissions of the defendants that the fact of publication could be established. Blathwaite was again examined, but in vain. He well remembered, he said, that the bishops owned their hands, but he did not remember that they owned the paper which lay on the table of the Privy Council to be the same paper which they had delivered to the King, or that they were even interrogated on that point. 
several other official men who had been in attendance on the council were called, and among them Samuel Pepys, Secretary of the Admiralty, but none of them could remember that anything was said about the delivery. It was to no purpose that Williams put leading questions till the council on the other side declared that such twisting, such withdrawing, was never seen in a court of justice, until Wright himself was forced to admit that the solicitor's mode of examination was contrary to all rule. As witness after witness answered in the negative, roars of laughter and shouts of triumph, which the judges did not even attempt to silence, shook the hall. End of part 13